Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In an attempt to be a better Latin teacher, I've been trying to immerse myself in Roman culture and history more and more this year. And one of the figures that I've become very interested in has been a guy named Spartacus. Maybe you're familiar with him because of the Showtime TV series. That was very historically inaccurate. Rome, of course, in its time, was one of the most powerful empires in the history of the world. Many Romans, particularly those in the upper class, had slaves. And slavery at the time was different than what we think of when we think of American chattel slavery, but it was nevertheless not, an ex not a pleasant experience for those who were enslaved. Rome was built on the back of those who were exploited. And of course, Rome was famous for its gladiators. Maybe you've seen the uh, Russell Crowe movie, Gladiator. Um, and gladiators were actually slaves who were used for public entertainment. Spartacus was a gladiator in about 70 AD. He and some of his gladiator friends killed their master and escaped. Spartacus and his handful of slaves ended up gathering more and more rebels until they had a sizable army of about 70,000 fighting people. And they consistently beat back the Romans during what we now call the Third Servile War. Eventually, they ended up losing. Uh, but the fact that a ragtag group of slaves could not only escape and then recruit, but hamper the Roman military machine uh, until only the very best military minds could stop them is so fascinating. The, the people that it took to stop them were Marcus Crassus, Julius Caesar, and uh, another military genius named Pompey. Out of the dregs of Roman society came a movement that made their whole society stand still. Uh, and for a short time, made it look like Roman society may even cease to exist. In The Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien says, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. This is, of course, in the context of hobbits who are small of stature, but smallest doesn't have to refer to physical size. And of course, the story bears itself out uh, as Frodo, a small hobbit, takes the evil ring all the way into enemy territory to be destroyed, while the evil forces in Tolkien's world conjure everything to try and stop him. There's something about that idea contained in the quote that the smallest person can change the course of human history that just rings true in the human heart. We are, we are naturally attracted to stories with that theme. Right? We even refer to them as David and Goliath stories. The original Star Wars movies would be another example. A kid from the middle of nowhere joins up with a ragtag rebellion against a massive empire. Almost every movie, novel, and TV show at some point put their protagonist at a severe disadvantage only to have them pull it out at the end, even when things seem hopeless. The reason this story pattern resonates with us is because they are reflective of the ultimate story, the one true myth of Christianity. In our celebration of Christmas of the Christian calendar, week after week after week, we dramatize this true story. And Advent, which is coming swiftly to an end, is the point of the story where things are dark, where we must consider the hopelessness of the human cause. Yet in the midst of darkness, we reflect upon a spark of hope. And it's this spark that's testified to in our reading from Micah 5. The prophet speaks directly to Bethlehem, a small town in the middle of nowhere whose name means house of bread. 
and is categorized as one of the little clans of Judah. This is a backwater, one-stoplight town. Probably most people from larger cities hadn't even heard of Bethlehem. Nothing was expected to come out of it. Yet the message from the prophet to this place of seeming insignificance is dramatic. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Out of this insignificant place, God is going to bring the one who is to rule all of Israel. Furthermore, this ruler is going to stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. So this figure coming from a place called the house of bread is going to sustain and protect his flock, his chosen people, while establishing his reign to the very end of the earth and ushering in a time of peace. Out of weakness, God's strength shines through. This Micah reading finds its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel lesson from Luke as it speaks to the coming of our Lord. Mary, the mother of God, goes to her cousin Elizabeth's home. Both women are pregnant. And when Mary nears Elizabeth the baby, who's John the Baptist, leaps in her womb, meaning he's already doing his job of testifying towards Christ. This event causes Elizabeth to espouse what is now part of the Hail Mary prayer. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. According to Catholic writer Thomas Howard, this is an appropriate way to speak about her because she alone was chosen for a cooperation with the Most High that went far beyond just bearing witness to the word, as had been the office of patriarchs and the lawgiver Moses and the prophet. She was to bear the word. And so then Mary prays the Magnificat, one of the great prayers in the history of the world and something that we pray at the daily offices regularly. Mary was probably very young. I think most scholars put her somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15. She's from a rural area, middle of nowhere, in a land that's occupied by the Romans. She had almost no political or social power. Yet somehow she becomes the vessel of the incarnation, the tabernacle of our Lord. And so she prays, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The prayer is brilliant because Mary doesn't see herself as anything special, even though she is. Rather, in this moment where she has been recognized as the God-bearer, she pushes praise onto God for his actions. She recognizes the significance of his choice because he selected a poor virgin from the middle of nowhere. Much like God came to Elijah in the soft whisper, he becomes incarnate for us in the midst of the mundane. It's not in the royal halls that Christ is born, but in the most lowly of circumstances. And in this regard, it anticipates the life and death of the Messiah, 
The God-man becomes rejected by the world, scorned, hung on a cross, proving Paul right in 1 Corinthians 1, that the means of God are often considered foolishness by men, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Martin Luther picked up on this in Thesis 4 of his Heidelberg Disputation. He says, God's work always looks unattractive and appear to be bad. However, they are true, everlasting merits. God has a plan. He has a trajectory. There's an endpoint to his actions in space and time. And we see that endpoint, at least partially illumined, in our Hebrews reading. The reason Christ became incarnate in our world was inexplicably linked to the cross. His birth anticipates the tomb. In fact, there are small literary features about Luke's account of Christ's birth that point to his eventual crucifixion, death, and resurrection. In the Gospels, Jesus' birth and burial are treated literarily as parallels. At Jesus' birth, he's wrapped in linen bands, Luke 2.7. At his burial, he's again wrapped in linen bands, Luke 23.53. At his birth, they laid him in a manger, Luke 2.7. At his burial, they took his body and laid it in a tomb, also in 2353. In Luke's nativity narrative, an angel makes an announcement of Jesus' birth to a group of shepherds who make a pilgrimage to Jesus' birthplace. Meanwhile, an angel announces the resurrection to a group of women visitors at the tomb, both of whom, shepherds and women, were on the fringes of society and made kind of odd uh, you know, first responders to these divine events. From humble beginnings and through a seemingly incoherent death, Christ fulfills God's demand for a holiness that we could not provide on our own. By becoming incarnate, Christ engages in the most daring rescue mission of all time, fulfilling Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. And so we find in the ugliness and the disgrace of the cross, the ushering in of a new era in human history, a time when God and man can have fellowship fully restored. And this restoration can only happen in Christ once and for all sacrifice upon the cross. It is the sacrifice that the author of Hebrews discusses in our epistle reading for the day. The Old Testament law and sacrificial system had to be offered over and over and over again. Year after year after year. By priest after priest after priest. But as the author points out, the sacrifices ha- the sacrifices never actually did away with sin completely on their own. In fact, they were almost counterproductive in that they reminded people that they were sinful year after year after year. Ultimately, it's a question of matter. Perhaps a sacrifice can provide temporary cover from a sin, but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take it away permanently. And so the son offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf to rent us from our chains held by Satan's sin and death and to restore a right relationship between us and our creator. The author of Hebrews goes on to tell us, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. 
In our Anglican reading group, we're reading Vernon Staley's book, The Catholic Religion. And he summarizes what exactly this means about abolishing the first and establishing the second. The prophecies, types, and figures of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ and the Christian church. The revelation of the Old Testament is completed in that of the New Testament. The old sacrifices are fulfilled in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on Calvary and its continual application in the Holy Eucharist. The moral law and the Ten Commandments is perfected and raised to a higher meaning by Christ and the Sermon on the Mount and made binding upon Christian people. The priesthood is summed up and perfected in Christ, the great high priest, and continued in Christian ministry. The hereditary descent of the sons of Aaron finding its counterpart in the spiritual descent of apostolic secession. The royal priesthood of the Jewish nation finds its expression in the lay priesthood of the Christian church. The sacrament of holy baptism takes the place of the rite of circumcision and the holy Eucharist of the Jewish Passover. The fasts and festivals of the Jewish church make way for those of the Christian church, whilst the Jewish Sabbath passes into the Christian Sunday. In short, the old church was absorbed into the new, and the Jewish religion filled with new meaning and endowed with new powers through the coming of God in the flesh and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost passed into the Christian Catholic religion. So every member of the church is a type of what goes on with Bethlehem in our Micah lesson and Mary in our Luke lesson. We each come from lowly estate. That is, in our sin, we find ourselves incapable of doing anything pleasing to God on our own. Yet God has seen fit to act in our lives through the church's sacraments, to incorporate us into this community of faith and bestow grace upon us that we could never merit on our own through the work of his son. And so the author of Hebrews reminds us, it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. And it is the same offering that we're about to receive here in the Eucharist. So we go to the table today to partake of his body and blood given for us, keenly aware of our lowest state and the unthinkable actions of God and Christ on our behalf. And so as we go, let us remember Mary's example of humility in the Magnificat. Let us pray. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Amen.